Before we begin, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the class. I've personally taken a few of these classes, and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion, but wanting more. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. I'll see you there. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for another fabulous edition of the Richard Listens podcast. I am thankful to have you all with me here today, and we have another exciting coach from the men's soccer realm here today, two-time gold medal winning Maccabi soccer coach, as well as the coach for Birmingham Southern. If you haven't already, please check out my Instagram at Richard Listens or my Patreon dot com slash Richard Listens page. My guest today is Preston Goldfarb, head men's soccer coach, uh, historically from Birmingham Southern College men's soccer program, recently retiring and leaving a program uh, that he had coached since 1983. Uh, he is credited with over 40 years of soccer experience, helping bring adult soccer programs to Alabama, as well as growing them since the 1996 Olympic run-up. Um, and he was also um, a driving force between the city of Birmingham, Alabama, hosting Olympic soccer. He took junior boys men's soccer to the 2009 World Maccabea Games uh, and did so again uh, in 2013. Uh, first ever, I believe, to win back-to-back -back Olympic gold medals. He's a native of Birmingham, uh, and he attended the University of Oklahoma on a basketball scholarship, so I'm sure we'll get into that. And he also holds a JD degree, uh, JD degree from the Birmingham School of Law. Without further ado, I look forward to bringing you Preston Goldfarb. Uh, how are you doing today, Coach? I'm hanging in there. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> How's the heat down there in Alabama? Well, today it's been fairly pleasant. Only in the 70s today, um, so it's been kind of pleasant uh overcast but but nice and for all of our listeners who are here you know listening via via audio uh this is a great wall of fame behind you there uh <laughs> all, all the gold medals and accomplishments and um so when were you were you just completing your career at birmingham southern is that the article uh we were, we were looking at 
No, uh, the one I sent you. No, yes. it was. Uh, I started the program at Birmingham Southern um, in 1983, and then um, in 1993, um, I was approached by the commissioner of the old uh, United States Interregional Soccer League about possibly doing a franchise. So in 93, I started trying to find some sponsors and see if I wanted to do this, but only do it as an amateur, not as professional. We were the only amateur team in it uh, all over the country. And uh, we had to get sanctioned by the NCAA to allow our kids to play. And so um, we started the Grasshoppers in 1993. And then um, we did well in 94 and 95, made it to the finals in 94 of the tournament where only nine, the nine regions uh, had a winner and we went in and uh, didn't do well, but we got there and um, even went and played in Hawaii one time with our team. But in 96, it got to, like the article uh, said, it got to diminish returns with my players and uh, being hurt and tired. And, and it also hit my pocketbook pretty hard. So it was, my wife said, I had to stop. So <laughs> that's, that's, keep going until uh, yeah, says, that's it, no more suffering. I mean, I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, the soccer in the city documentary. I know there's a couple good ones out there to watch. Yeah, there are. There's some good ones. But yeah, they, 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 you know, I was really as a, as a basketball guy and I know you played basketball as well. Uh, it goes into the history of soccer in our country. And so even though I have three kids playing soccer and one with aspirations in college, I was not aware of the amount, the, you know, the difficulty of getting leagues started and maintaining them in this history yeah. that you're referring to. And, and, and there was kind of, uh, you know, there the part of the efforts to bring in Pele. Uh, but that was a different re league, right? The, the grasshoppers were... We were the, the old NASL um, was what where the cosmos were and uh, the earthquakes and um, all those really good teams. Um, and they had all these famous players. The cosmos had Franz Beckenbauer and, um, and obviously Pele and some others. And uh, Johan Cruyff was out West. And so th these were really interesting times in the soccer history. Uh, the problem that I felt and the reason it folded is they built it from the top down, meaning, um, they overloaded with really famous old players and paid them a lot of money. And we didn't develop our own players in that capacity. And so that's what really, I think, turned NASL on its head. And then um, after that, we had a the plethora of um, ABC leagues, including the USISL, um, which is now the USL. It is it spawned to the USL under the MLS. And, um, so we're, we're, we're making progress um, in the country, but it's a, it's a slow um, way to go. I mean, it's very difficult. And like I said in the article, and I have felt this all along, is that in order for the United States to really be an international powerhouse, which we have great athletes, and there's no reason we shouldn't, um, we have to have promotion and relegation in the leagues where you're playing for something, where every game means something for you to stay up, or you fall back and then your salary gets affected, the team loses money, um, and it becomes, you know, it's competition. And that's what makes improvement. And so, but we're, you know, the argument for that is that our country is so large that it's difficult to have a promotion and relegation situation. My solution would be to do it in a East and a West or North and South, divided into four areas, and then have promotion and relegation under each of those 
um, teams. That's what I thought, but I don't know. So it becomes too hard to, to move them up between the farm system, back and down between games or. Right. You know, like in the rest of the world, uh, you have your first division and then you have leagues underneath that. And every league is trying to get promoted to the next league because it means more money, uh, more money for the club, more money for the players. And so that, and, and here in the States, we don't have that kind of a situation, whether it be uh, football, whether it be basketball, uh, basketball has a CBA, but it doesn't promote and relegate. And baseball has, you know, the triple A and double A and single A, but it's not a promotion and relegation situ situation. Same with the MLS and the USL and, and the USL is divided into a couple areas too, but again, no promotion and relegation. So every player has an incentive to just play. I mean, you don't have to worry about whether you're going to, your salary is going to be affected or whether or not the team financially is going to be affected if you were to be uh, demoted. So I, I just think that's the best way to do it. It's the way the rest of the world does it. But we in this country seem to follow our own lead sometimes blindly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings up two questions for me. Have you seen, there's another, I, I'm, I'm giving my hand here that I'm watching way too much Netflix, but there's a documentary <laughs> called Biggest Losers. Have you seen it? I have not. And it, I, have. I mean, these are some great stories across different sports and they've got like, you know, champion boxers who went on to win yeah. the championship, then lose it. But there's one about a soccer team that's in like the bottom division of the bottom league. And if they lose one more game, they're going to be demoted. Yeah. And it's a fascinating story about their season and what happens in the final game. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll have to look at that. Yeah. yeah. It might give you some humor, you know, where they, they were, had no funding <laughs> driving around in a minivan, but that's right. like, you see, I think it's, it's in Italy or, or, you know, where they could get around in, in one car, sure. Uh, sure. make it to league matches. But the other question I have for you is, you know, I'm a New Yorker, I'm in LA and not all my listeners understand what it's like to be in the South. And this is this is football country. This is where you know RVs are pouring in on the weekend. Uh, what was it like to bring soccer there? And you know, was there was there resistance? Were you trying to pull guys off football fields? Uh, you know, uh, how did you know, how did that process? Yeah, that's a great great question um, that I get asked all the time. And um, the person that used to work here, who now with ESPN, I'm sure you heard Paul Feinbaum. Yeah, he and I butted heads uh, numerous times. He he felt like soccer was a communist sport and it had no place. It was for babies and uh, all that. And you know, and I went on his radio show one time, and um, I didn't want to, but I did. And we got in an argument, and I hung up. I wasn't going to tolerate what he was the, the demeaning way he was putting soccer down and um and yeah you know it, it's difficult especially in alabama um in in alabama there's only two sports and it's football and football um and it's alabama and it's auburn um and that's why a professional football team has never done anything in birmingham they've tried uh but it, it never will um the late paul bryant the former coach at alabama um he said he would never support a professional franchise in Birmingham or in Alabama. And so it's always remained that way. What we did is we tried to tap in. I started a, a youth organization in the early 70s uh, in Birmingham, and it became the largest youth organization in the state at that time. And um, we wanted to really develop the youth, the grassroots. And if we could get just a little bitty piece of that pie to come to the games, uh, we felt it was successful. We weren't trying to 
to steal away players or steal anything from anyone. And we didn't want, you know, football to be converged on by soccer. That was not our intention here. But we did want a little piece of the pie. And I think we, at one point, we got to that situation where soccer has started blossoming in the state and um, doing fairly well. Uh, the problem is, you know, in college, um, at Birmingham Southern, when I started the program, we were an NAI program. And um, our president that hired me in 1999, in 2001, he wanted to move us to Division One, which was great. But we're, we're a school of 1,200 students. Um, and it was very difficult. We were the smallest, I think we were the, either the second or third smallest Division One college in the country. Um, and we did well. Um, but he retired. And um, what happened then is all the other men's programs started dying away because of Title IX and the women's sports. And so it left us with only two Division I programs in the state of Alabama, Birmingham Southern and UAB. In 2006, our, they got a, we got a new president who came in and moved everyone unannounced to Division Three, And we shut down two programs at Birmingham Southern, men's basketball and baseball. They just completely shuttered the program. The coaches left, players left. We remained. And uh, I was too old to move anywhere else at that point. <laughs> Um, and then, the, as it turned out, that president almost bankrupted the college when we almost closed our doors. And from there, um, they hired a new president who was a former commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, Charles Krulak, former Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was a big soccer guy. Uh, he was on the board at Aston Villa. Um, his best friend was Randy Lerner, uh, the owner of, uh, at that time, Cleveland Browns, his father and he. And then Randy Lerner bought Aston Villa and has since sold it. But it, it was, he, General Krulak turned everything around financially for the college and kept our doors open. And it was great. He was on the sideline with me every game just about. And <laughs> that was kind of interesting. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it was difficult because we didn't have the number of colleges and universities playing men's soccer. We have a lot of women's soccer, but not a lot of men. And it was a very difficult chore and then we moved to d3 and that was the death of athletics at our college in my opinion uh, now is the reason why schools make this decision is it funding is it uh, it's twofold i think a lot of it is because of money when we were d1 when we were nei we had five sports and we had i did a study on it we had five sports and we had 1300 students which was good for birmingham southern it's a small private liberal arts college cost about five thousand a year to go there and so we had um that situation in AI with five sports and um, 1,300 students. We fast forward to 2001 and we have 14 sports. We're division one. We have 1,300 students. And in those five sports, we had 90 athletes. And so we had 1,300. So you have 1,210, what I would call a normal student. Fast forward to uh, 2001 with division one and 14 sports. We had, um, what did we have? We had 190 athletes. So we're now at 1,110 normal students, uh, non-athletic students. And then we moved to D3 in 2006, and we have 1,300 students, and we have 22 sports, and we have over 500 athletes. So now you're looking at 800 normal students. So the money is just not there uh, to make things happen. 
He added football, which was a disaster. It's still there, but it just, I mean, they don't draw 20 people to the games. I mean, it's like watching junior high football. It's a horrible situation, in my opinion. That's my opinion. Uh, but I'm not a big football person, American football person. Um, but all of our sports in D1 did exceptionally well. Baseball, basketball, and uh, soccer did extremely well. We all won conference championships. Basketball was on the verge of going to the NCAAs. Baseball made it to the regionals. Um, so we were doing really, really well. And we were getting media coverage and that you can't put a price on. And we were getting students. And then D3 just killed everything. And uh, did I want to retire? Uh, well, I wanted to retire from uh, D3 in, in 2016. And, um, but I wasn't ready to quit coaching. I, I just wasn't. Uh, I loved teaching the game. And so, um, but I just felt I couldn't handle D3 anymore. Everybody at D3, just about all the athletes are entitled. So they have to play. And uh, I was given a mandate by the president just by bankrupt the college saying that I, I had to take anyone. I said, what do you mean anyone? I said, if somebody's blind and has one arm and one leg, he said, he, you, and he wants to be on the soccer team, you have to let him. I said, this is crazy. And, and that's, that's the problem. Because they don't want to lose the student enrollment. Correct. And, you know, D3 in the South is horrible. D3 up East is very strong. I mean, you have um, like in, in uh, the NESCAC, uh, Williams and Amherst and Tufts, those kind of schools, I mean, their athletic programs are really good. But down South, D3 is just like high school. It's, it's just awful. You know, you, but you were a basketball guy. Did you play soccer growing up too, or was basketball? Yeah, we didn't have soccer and we didn't have soccer. <laughs> I didn't know what that was uh, growing up. Um, I played basketball. I was a little guy um, and uh, I didn't learn how to play the game until I was 10 years old. Um, my dad forced me to go to a community center and play bitty basketball. And I fell in love with it and started really working. I played basketball and I played Handball, four-wall handball. Those were my two sports. And, um, yeah, I love basketball. I went to Oklahoma uh, my first year. I played for the late John McLeod. Uh, oh, wow. Then it, was, it was a freshman team. Um, I was a little guy, but, you know, I wasn't a shooter or anything. I was a passer and defender type person. I was a point guard. And um, I got injured, and I came home, and that was that. So, uh, in the mid early 70s, I, was, I went to Germany with my brother. He's an MD, and he – he um, raises German shepherds, or he did, and he's also an international German shepherd dog judge. And so at that time, I was fluent in German, and so I went over there with him to help and find a, jo a dog, and I, I was sitting in a pub and watching soccer, and I fell in love with it. I said, this is like basketball, except with your feet. The <laughs> tactics are very similar, um, the way you, you set up Without offense the ball. and defense. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's great. Mm. And so that's when that was like 1972. I came home in 73 and started uh, playing in a men's league to try and learn the game myself and then um, started that youth league. And then in 80, um, when did I go? 85, I started going to Germany once and twice a year to work on my coaching license and to learn the game from different coaches over there. And so, and then in 89, I went to Brazil and did the same thing. And so that's how my history of soccer and I fell in love with it. And 
because I went to Germany to help my brother. Exactly. How to get a long way from home. (laughs) Wasn't going to come in your environment. You know, I've been talking around the podcast and what I'm putting in my book is one chapter on, you know, it takes a village, right? You know, like who you're surrounded by. And if you can't get it directly in your, your family or those around you, you may have to find out what you need and seek it out. Exactly. Uh, and, and it's it's amazing when you get exposed to something like that where you're like oh my goodness I mean I remember I had back surgery out of college and the World Cup with uh, I think it's when Holland won or finished second uh, in 90 it was 98 and I was just enamored uh, yeah, yeah you, you see passion you see people like you know we don't have this here you know the level of uh, devotion fitness uh, it's incredible you know uh, uh, you'll run a midfielder will run 10 miles in a game easy uh, but the passion is because it's a country and the the whole country rallies around their team that's you know they grow up with the ball at their feet we grow up with the ball in our hand and, and that's the big difference between the two uh, we all grow up playing baseball or basketball or throwing a football and um, all those kind of things and over there it's always a soccer ball uh, that they're playing with and it really is in their blood and they they really um, love the sport and they're fanatics about it, especially for their countries. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. I've been to a few World Cups and I went to one in Italy in 1990 that was just unbelievable. That atmosphere was incredible. And it's, you know, you want that here, but it's not going to happen. Well, the 96 World Cup, I think, kind of kind of is credited with oh, boosting 90, us a little bit. 94 here? 94, yeah, a yeah, little 90, bit, right? Because yeah. was that the Colombia one where we beat Colombia or lost to the – beat them and then lost to Brazil in the final or something? Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's great. And I still follow it. I watch it all the time. And, um, and we see, you know, I just love watching the game. And still, I still try and learn by watching. That's the best way to do it. That is it. And so how much of, of exposure now with Fox Sports, you know, and, and all these channels where you can watch European League and uh, I think Germany, you can watch all kinds of yeah. <laughs> leagues. Uh, is that giving exposure to the next generation it is. Um, it, it, to it, see it soccer is. as a destination? I think so. You know, I, you know, and where we've really got to get is to the inner city, uh, to be honest. Um, if we can tap into that, uh, and show them that it is a way out of their environment, uh, then I think soccer is going to really, really take off. Uh, but I've been saying that for years. So I think that's the inner city is a key for us. Um, you know, everybody fine bombing tickets is a rich man's sport and all that. It's not. All you need is a pair of shoes, socks, pants, and a shirt. And that's it. And you go play. And you can play anywhere the game. Um, so it's – but I think once we get there, get to the um, inner city and get those athletes involved, it's going to really, really take off. Yeah, some of it here in Los Angeles is field access, space. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's certain soccer clubs, grassroots, uh, downtown soccer club, making it, uh, I think, one of the most affordable clubs in the nation. There was an article in the L.A. Times by Bill Platsky earlier this year, and thanks to Coach Chris Johnson and his work there about getting uh, young women playing soccer there and breaking some of the gender roles uh, where young, young girls are expected to be in the kitchen, things like that, and, and getting them out there. Uh, and it is fascinating to me. There is nothing uh, more exciting than watching like an under 10, you know, boys championship game at that level right there. I mean, the sidelines, yeah. I mean, at, at that age, the kids have their hair done, 
head shaved. They all have <laughs> names on the back of the jersey. Yeah. I mean, you want to see commitment. Uh, but it's probably because their parents grew up with a little of what you're talking about. They yeah, grew up where, where soccer yeah. meant. We used to grow up in, in Birmingham. We had on PBS station called Soccer Made in Germany. That's the only thing we ever got. And it was always uh, Toby Charles was the announcer, and it was always special on the weekend to see that soccer made in Germany. It was always a week later, but uh, <laughs> it was still great. The things we do to connect to our sport. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what are your uh, your two quarantine tips you've been giving to players? Because you mentioned four-wall uh, handball. Was it handball or racquetball? Uh, handball. 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 So, so I told my kids about stoop ball. That's what we learned in, in New York, you know, uh, yeah. Hitting, yeah. hitting the ball off the stoop. And, uh, you know, so we've been doing that and throwing the ball in the driveway. Uh, That's awesome. Other than juggling the ball, what can soccer players do? They can go find a wall and kick it against a wall and, and work on their touch. Um, that's the most important thing is their touch. And find a wall. It can be anywhere, uh, the side of the house. Just kick the ball against the wall and try and control it with your foot or your head or your chest. Let it head it at different levels. That's the best thing you can by far. It seems like everyone these days is trying new workout systems. Some people go to the gym, others may run, but I've recently discovered a great in-home method that is absolutely amazing. I'm taking in-jitsu classes online where I'm being trained and pushed in real time by top MMA fighters straight from the octagon. Injitsu.com provides real-time classes so you can get a top-notch workout from the comfort of your own home. These classes are absolutely going to sell out. So head over to injitsu.com slash Richard Listens to get your first class for free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash Richard Listens. Protecting your child's teeth is important in any sport. That's why Impact Dental Designs has put so much thought into their state-of-the-art mouth guards, protecting athletes in youth sports all the way up to advanced MMA fighters and champions. And the best part is you can customize your own design for your own creative and fun mouth guard. So head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash Richard Listens. And if you purchase now, you get a free customized design and 20% off your order. Unprecedented times, but there's always something you can do. It is always something. That's for sure. That is for sure. So, you know, we and, 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 and we overlap with the involvement in, in Maccabi USA. Right. Um, talk to us about, you know, your relationship with them and then, you know, your journey to, to winning two gold medals. Uh, okay. How does that compare to the rest of your soccer experience and where does that sit uh, in terms to. of your accomplishments? Yeah. yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, it's an interesting um, story about Maccabi and me. Um, in 2001, I got a call from Maccabi about coaching a youth team in Israel. And at one of my coaching courses in Germany, I met uh, at that time who was uh, the under-21 Israeli national coach named Zev Zeltzer. And we became really good friends. And uh, in 2001, that's when war broke out uh, in Israel again. <laughs> and um, right. so I called him. And I, because we were going to be in in, uh, in Natanya, and I asked him what is his thoughts of me bringing you know an under sixteen team over there. He said I would not come. It's too dangerous where you're going to be. I just wouldn't do it. And so um, I was the last coach to pull out. Uh, I waited to the last to make everything see if we could do it. 
I had parents not wanting to go and I said, let me do some checking. And so we did. And I pulled out and I was the last coach to do it. And then the person that was in charge at that time, um, he was a you know, a volunteer guy, but in charge of a lot of this, um, he blackballed me after that. So in 2005, I got a call from somebody with a, with a under 18 team wanting me to coach them. And I said, well, I'd love to do it, but I think you need to call Maccabi USA and ask them because I don't think they're going to let me. And sure enough, he did and said, you can't do it um, for whatever reasons. I didn't care. And I said, I know what the reason is, you know, to tell me. And then in 2009, um, the person in charge of programs then was Ami Monson. Um, and Ami um, ran into me at a coaching clinic uh, NSCAA coaches convention. Mm. Um, and he had a booth there it was in Philadelphia. And so he started talking to me about doing it. I said, look, I'm not being thrown under the bus again. I, I don't want to do this. And so 2000, he kept on and on and I said, okay. So, um, in 2009, I coached a, a, a juniors team. Uh, we went over to Israel with the juniors team and uh, we finished fourth. Uh, we should have finished higher, but we, we just didn't. Uh, but we did beat Israel, Israel in pool play. Um, and we weren't a very good team, but we, we overachieved. Um, but I felt like we should have finished either third, second or third. I didn't think we should have won it. So in 2013, the chairman uh, asked me to, to coach the Open. I went to, well, take that back. 2010, um, I was asked to coach the Open team in Australia. Australia used to have a Maccabi Games. Um, and so I said, okay. So I went to Australia and we coached and we won the silver medal. We lost to Brazil and we beat Brazil in pool play and wound up playing them again in the finals and they, they beat us. We were just zapped. We didn't have anything. So 2013 rolls around and I get asked to coach the open team. And um, so we, we uh, have tryouts in Philadelphia and in Los Angeles mm -hmm. and we select a, a really good team. I did a lot of uh, recruiting um, and I have all these being a college coach, you can get on these, they're called list serves where, every college coach is in there and you guess how you communicate. So I, I was pinned out email blast asking for Jewish players, um, you know, to please send me their information. Um, and so we can talk to them about possibly trying out for the, uh, the world Maccabi games. Mm -hmm. And um, so we chose a team in 13, 2009's open team was really good. They had some unbelievable and 2005, 2005's team won the silver medal. They had, um, Benny Failhaber, Jonathan Bornstein, um, all these national players on there, um, Leo Krupnik, all these great players. They won the silver medal. They didn't win it. Wow. Um, and 2009, we had a really good team there too, uh, but they just didn't – the chemistry wasn't there. So 13, we set out about choosing a, a team. I mean, it's a lot of good players tried out. But, but when you have your tryouts, you're trying to – to see how they all interact with each other as you divide up teams and figure out which one I pretty much knew who I wanted going in. Um, and some of them weren't the best players. Um, but we wanted a team that would get along every single day. We're there almost a month and you're together almost a month, every single minute of the day. So you have to get along. And under the rules of the Maccabi games, uh, you're allowed six subs. You have a roster of 20, you have six subs, so four people don't play every game. You have to sit. And once you're out, you're out, which is fine. I mean, that's the way it should be. 
And so you had to make sure everyone understood that as well and that they would buy in to what you're trying to do. So we chose, I thought, a really, really good team. Well, we get over there and we have some practice games. We do well in those practice games during the early part of the uh, trip. Um, and then the tournament starts. We play Uruguay in the first game and we lose. <laughs> One nothing. <laughs> so our backs are against the wall in 13. We can't lose again in order to get to the finals. And sure enough, we started winning. Uh, we scored, I think, 20, 25 goals and gave up five in that whole tournament. Wow. Um, and we get to the finals. Argentina was the defending champion. Uh, we get to the finals against Argentina. And Argentina, um, in the 60th minute of the game, they baited one of our players, typical of Latin-type players. You know, they're South American players. They baited one of our kids, and he threw a punch, and he was ejected. Um, and so we're now playing a man down for the 30 minutes left in the game. And then we have to go to overtime. We're still tied. We were winning at that time, two to one. And then they tie us and we go into overtime. We play in two 15 minute overtimes, another 30 minutes. So we play 60 minutes <laughs> with 10 men, nine field players and a keeper. We get to a shootout and we win in the shootout and the penalty kicks and we win the gold medal against Argentina. So that was really, really special. Um, I was not going back in 17. Um, I mean, how do you, <laughs> what else can you do? You've already won it. You know, the first team to win it in the 76 year history of it. Uh, but the person that was going to coach got really sick. He was my assistant in 13. So he couldn't go. Uh, he was already set to be the coach. And the chairman, who's a really good friend of mine, the, the big guy that was raising money and um, lives in Cincinnati, he kept calling me every single day. <laughs> and um, I said, okay, if Warren calls me and says he's okay with me doing it, but I have to hear it from him. I'm not going to, I'm not going to cut somebody out to do that. He, maybe he gets well and he can go. And sure enough, he called and said, no, nah, I don't feel good. You, you need to do it. So I did. Um, and I was late in the game trying, that was August. And normally you start in January trying to recruit kids. So I'm six months behind the eight ball there. Um, and so we, um, start recruiting kids. We didn't have as many tryout, and we only had like 20-something in California. And in Philadelphia, I think we had 60-something. So we, we didn't have many. In 13, we had 130-something in Philadelphia, and we had 60-something in California. So it was a big difference. But what I did is I, I knew that I wanted to bring some of my players back from 13 that could help bridge the gap between me and the new players so they would understand my my system of how we do things on and off the field and so I brought five of my players uh, one of them had had ACL surgery so he he did go and he played a little bit but not a lot um, and so we had a good nucleus to go over we had five you know a fourth of our team played in 13 and so we chose some really good good kids uh, to go we had D1 players, D2 players, and D3 players. And, Coach, um, this is and, really important, right? You talk about a couple things there for those that are not familiar, you know, so familiar with soccer or, you know, having the – understanding the system of your coach uh, takes time. You could be a very talented player. Uh, you could have been on winning teams. But if you don't adapt to the system, right. uh, the formations, and if you're not comfortable in it, uh, whether or not it be uh, conscious or not, some people are, you know, very – knowledgeable about what system they their strengths are suited towards right. it can be really uncomfortable so um having players there who can kind of 
clarify roles and accept their roles already really must have eased in that transition for you. Right. It was very important. And, and again, I made it very clear at the beginning that not everyone's going to get to play. This is not recreation. We're going to over there to try and win. I'm not going to, and I said that at the tryouts. I said at the end of tryouts. I said it when we got to Israel for our camp. And I said it before the tournament started. And we still had one player that was a little bit upset about it, but, you know, he got a gold medal out of it, so he didn't be too upset. Um, you know, a coach has to have players on the team that understand him and that believe in what he's doing or trying to do. And then the coach has to develop a system that best fits his players. He can't make players fit his system. He has to develop it. And so that's what we did with those five players. We were able to develop a system with the rest of the players we had that would give us the best chance of winning. And so we go into that tournament and um, we, we play, I think we played Venezuela first and they were really dirty. Um, and uh, we beat them three zero. So our next game is against Great Britain um, who uh, in 2009 was a finalist um, 2005 and 2009. Uh, no, not not five. five uh, nine, they were uh, a finalist. And in 13, they made it to the semifinals. And so, um, and they play as a team year-round. They're called the London Lions. Uh, and they play as a team in a lower league, but they play year-round. And they were good. Um, so we play them. They're in our pool. Um, and so we, we play them. And I'm starting my backup keeper at that point. And because uh, I promised the keepers they would rotate. I, it's just not, I mean, that's what you have to do with them. Uh, and he was good enough to do something. But he made a mistake on a goal kick, on a corner kick with about three minutes to go in the game. And we lose 1-0 to them. So here we are again, backs against the wall. And we play Australia in the last game of pool play. And we have to win by two goals in order to go through to the quarterfinals. We win 2-0. Um, go to the quarterfinals, we play our Uruguay, and we really kicked their rear ends this time. Um, and so that was a good one for us. Now we go to the semifinals, and who do we play? Israel's under-23 national team with their <laughs> national under-23 national coach. And um, they were really, really – they were, in my opinion, they were probably four goals better than we were, um, except that day. Mm-hmm. Um, on that day – um, we're, we're losing 1-0. We had a bad play in the first half. Uh, one of my midfielders played a ball back towards our own goal at such rocket speed that our kid couldn't handle it, and it ricocheted to their guy right in the goal. Oh. So it makes it 1-0 at half. And my keeper is really keeping us in the game. And so we go to um, halftime, and we make some adjustments tactically how we're going to do things. I said, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to put pressure, and we've got to score quickly. Um, and get the game tied. And then we can hope to get into overtime, hold them and get into overtime. We'll change our system once we tie the game, go back into a, a, a defensive type of posture and counterattack out of it. And so, lo and behold, five minutes in, we score um, the tying goal to make it uh, 1-1 uh, on a great counterattack. And then um, four minutes later, we have a throw-in, a long throw-in in our end, in the, uh, our offensive end. And one of my kids goes up for the ball, heads it, breaks his nose, blood everywhere, heads it in the goal. We, we go up 2-1. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's – That's an injury uh, he'll never forget. Game. I mean, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, 
they're stunned, but we made adjustments. And after the game on a video interview on their website uh, that they had for the games, the coach, they asked the coach, how come you lost this game? And he said, well, they made adjustments at halftime. We didn't adjust. He said, you have to give them credit for what they did. He said, we should have been up four goals. And he should have in the first half. Second half, they were all over us. But my keeper made save after save after save. We win the game 2-1. Who do we play in the finals again? Great Britain. And um, so we made a change on that. I took my center mid, my attacking center mid player, and I told him we're going to move you to the left wing because their right back was not real strong. I felt he was their weak link. I said, we're just going to get you the ball, and you're going to take him on 1v1. And uh, you go. He scores three goals. We win 3-0. So, it, you know, it was just a special way for me to, to end my career uh, with Maccabi USA and to, to go out with uh, back-to-back gold medals. Um, I think I was told I was the only coach to ever win back-to-back gold medals because most coaches change every four years. They don't have the same coach. So it's kind of kind of uh, a little – It's kind of hard when you're, when you're coaching soccer. You have, uh, you have your college season. You have your summer right. workouts uh, to make time to – do tryouts across the country and then fly internationally. I mean, that takes a toll on you as a coach as well. It does. And so I, you know, I'm, I was thrilled. I had a, I had the best group of guys, both, both of those and leading into what you asked in the very beginning of this segment, um, you know, how does it compare with my college career and what I've done? I can unequivocally tell you that coaching 2013 team and the 2017 team, well, without question, the highlight of my coaching career, uh, without question. Um, I had some really good teams in college. Uh, we never won a national championship, but we got to the national finals five times, and we were runner-up once in final four, three of those four of those five times. I had some great teams, but nothing. And I mean, and I think part of it is being in Israel and what it meant to be in Israel and to be there with Jewish players that – bought into your philosophy of how you're going to conduct this program during those that month that we're three and a half weeks that we're there and to get along like that this team in 17 wherever when we went out to dinner every during the weeks and things there that everyone went together it never splintered the whole time we were there 13 team did as well uh, but it wasn't as close a team as the 17 team for some reason. Um, both teams were equal. Um, as far as my, my liking, I love both of those teams. I stay in touch with every one of those kids on both teams all the time. Yeah. And that's, that's the beauty. You know, we look at it when we see a team here that seems to gel together or stay together for even a short period of time. In, you know, professional sports, we think it's like a miracle, right? Like when they play yeah. for something bigger. So the beauty of, uh, you know, a, a games like this that has such meaning uh, to the players where they're in it for something bigger. Uh, I was well, just writing about that this morning, right? Like the experience in the locker room when you're, you know, on a team and, and you go from starting one game and you're the eighth guy the next game, but you love your team and you know what you're doing and why and you trust your coach and, and you're just why is bigger. Your purpose of being there is bigger. Um, no question. Yeah, I mean, those experiences, those relationships, uh, you know, there's not this – you know, what are you going to do after the game, right? It's, it's everything's about the journey and about building team. That's right. Um, you know, I'll take those two experiences to my grave. And I mean that sincerely. Um, 
it was the great, only thing missing was my family wasn't there with me. That's the only thing that was missing from it. Um, but I wouldn't take, I wouldn't trade those two experiences for any experience I've had in the game of soccer. Um, I, I just wouldn't. It was unbelievable. And people don't understand the level of play in the open division is extremely high. I mean, these are great, great players over there. Um, I have been contacted by uh, a player from Argentina and a player from Mexico and a player from Germany about would I be interested in coaching their team uh, in the next one. I'll be 75 years old. I, I just don't know if that's going to be something uh, that I want to do. But I was flattered by it. Um, and it's um, we, we just have a great group of guys, and, and we didn't put any real restrictions on them. Um, you know, they're all adults. They're in their early to mid-20s. And um, they know what they have. They're athletes. They came over there for a reason. They went there yeah. to win. And they were going to do whatever it took to make that happen. Um, and so I was very thankful um, that they honored me that way by, by buying in to what we wanted to do. That was yeah. the greatest honor. What a compliment when the other teams want to steal you as the coach. <laughs> that's, 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 I was pretty honored by that. That's for sure. <laughs> that or they just don't want uh, your home country to have you. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. Secret weapon. I mean, Israel tried their best. Against us. They put us in a locker room, I, I promise you. It wasn't air conditioned. I mean, there was not enough room for everyone to sit down. It was done intentionally. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, so we, we went out and did our job. <laughs> and that's a great age. And for our listeners that don't know fully, you know, the, the organization, Maccabi USA organization, has games that go all the way through the lifespan so pe- adults can continue to play through Correct. their working lives and continue training and playing. Uh, so wonderful organization that provides that it continuity. Is. It, it from- is a wonderful, it's a wonderful organization. I mean, it really is. And it's, it, you know, the mission of the organization, um, you just don't find everywhere. You know, it's, it's to, through sport, to enhance one's experience with their religion and their home country, you know, of, of Israel going back. And it's, it is giving back to it. And it's just, it's such a great mission and it means so much to so many people. I'm thankful that they gave me the opportunity um, to do this. Yes. And um, yeah. And you're, you're a testament to their uh, soul and spirit and uh, leadership. And, and I'm well, so thank thankful you. you give it time today. And of course, you know, for those of you who don't know the history the, the you know, back to the, the Munich games and Israeli athletes uh, losing their lives. So the importance of right. continuity and oh, turning a tragedy into something that's about sportsmanship, connection and survival and uh, all those themes that we're kind of seeing now, uh, through through coronavirus and beyond, um, you know, maybe in our last segment here, Coach, what, what do you see for yourself? What's what? I mean, we know that a coach, the goals never stop. I mean, is it? Uh, how do you stay connected with soccer and sport? Uh, are there other other ventures you're moving on to now? Well, I'm not really moving on to any really any ventures. Um, I just um, my my grandson is here. My son and his wife moved back to Birmingham from Tallahassee and. Uh, Florida and I've uh, been here for almost two years now back and um, he played for me in college and he actually helped me coach in 09 and um, he was an attorney for a couple of years and hated it and now he's helping his wife do research into opioid stuff that um, she's a PhD in public health so they're working together on all that through the Florida State Important and the baby's field. here yeah, and we're working on uh, they're, they're, they're having a, a little girl in August and so that's taken up a lot of our time with the son and the, the, their son, and uh, who's a little over two. And our daughter, 
uh, just got out of the Navy. Uh, she was a physician's assistant in the Navy and met a Marine and they moved to Salt Lake City and she's trying to hook up with the transplant team there to work with them. And he's working with Amazon out there. They were going to get married June the 2nd in Montana at a destination wedding. And obviously we had to cancel that. So it's kind of a bummer uh, for them and for us. But um, so that's really my life is our, our children and, and my family. My family is the most important thing in my life. It always has been. My parents taught us that way. Um, and my dad always told me, plant my feet firmly on the ground, know who you are, where you came from. He'll always find your way. And he was right about those things. And um, so it was a, a really good upbringing in Birmingham. I was born and raised in Birmingham and uh, only left twice, once to go to Oklahoma and once to go in the army. And that's, that's really it. Uh, and I couldn't think of anywhere else I'd want to live, to be fair. Um, it's a great place. And uh, so, yeah, do I stay in touch with soccer? Sure. Uh, my former assistant coach played for me at Birmingham Southern and coached with me for 20 years as my assistant is the head coach there now. Um, and so I, you know, stay in touch with him and some other former players that are coaching. And um, Sounds like you do, might get a youth soccer jersey soon if the two-year-old wants to play. You're right. <laughs> you might get pulled uh, in from the other end. That's yeah. right. That's right. But it's, <laughs> so, I, you know, I'm, I'm happy with my life. I, I, I'm happy um do i miss coaching i don't necessarily miss the games what i miss is teaching the game soccer is a very simple game uh it's the coaches that try to make it complicated and it's it's not about you know all these all you see is these kids doing all these fancy moves and all this kind of crap and um you know you can teach a uh, a seal to do all those tricks you don't it's soccer's a simple game it's 22 people on a field and with one ball and all 22 people are going to handle the ball. And it's the way you play. And the ball doesn't have wings. So it ain't meant to fly. It's meant to roll. It's round. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's really what it is. It's a simple game. I miss teaching that part of it to play simply. Um, teaching the way I, I – not that mine is the right way. It's just the right way for me to teach. Mm. Um, and I believe in that firmly. It's how I learned the game in Germany. It's how they play. And um, so that's what – I believe in. And so I do, I do people call occasionally and will ask me questions and I love doing that. I love to, to help and uh, help anyone that I can. And uh, is the South coming around? Are they warming to soccer now? I mean, I know Atlanta has a great MLS. They do. It it really is. I think the South is starting to slowly (laughs) come around (laughs) in in the game of soccer. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's been a fight. I mean, it's been a fight here because of American football. you know, what other country calls football, football that you play with your hands, you know, primarily 90% of the time you play with your hands in football uh, and you call it football. But in soccer, we call it soccer when you play 90% of the time with your feet. So it's kind of, kind of ridiculous, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. The ironies are not lost on most of the world when they say, that, you that, know, you exactly play football, right. you know exactly what they're asking. Right, right. Or as the Brits call it, footy. Footy, that's right. Fancy a game of footy. (laughs) And one of the great things out there, if any parents or, 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 you know, players are interested, is there's the UK International Foundation sends coaches from abroad to stay, and they need places to stay, and they'll stay on your couch, and they go work at the camp during the day, but they will teach your kids, and you get to learn about their experience abroad, and that's another great way in which 
uh, culture can be brought into your home and, and, and awareness about the sport and the different ways that it's played, the different divisions, right. the different academies uh, and how it's handled. And, and they're way ahead over there with sports psychology. They have sports psychologists assigned to clubs wow. from, from an early age. So uh, hopefully we're getting on the train uh, over yeah, here. I think it's, it's the one area that is missing. Um, and I think there's a great place for sports psychology. You know, right now, we as coaches have to do that. Um, you know, we have to be a coach. We have to be a father. We have to be a mentor. And we have to be a psychologist uh, to deal with these kids today. And so I think colleges and pros need to have on their staff sports psychologists. I think it's vital to the game and to the player. <laughs> but I think it's coming. I mean, I hear stories, at least, you know, the, the sports psychologists have to go through, you know, uh, freight elevators and UPS uniforms back in the day. <laughs> you know, I think we've moved forward a little bit. So, uh, you know, and anything else I can do for you? Do I need to have a Paul Feinbaum on here? And we, <laughs> you know, it was interesting what happened about soccer. And then uh, he put some, I, I had written for the paper he was working for here during the 94 World Cup. I covered all the games for them and wrote about the games. And of course he always had critical comments about me. Um, but then in 96, when we were having um, the Olympics come to um, Atlanta, the 96 Olympics in Birmingham, I was in charge of trying to get Birmingham as a venue for some soccer games. And, and it ultimately our campus, Birmingham Southern's college was the Olympic village. Um, and then, but what happened, the person I appointed, uh, to help me with it kind of backstabbed me and so I pulled out I thought it was a, a bad situation me and the, the money person behind it pulled out uh, we both did and uh, it was a bad situation and so Feinbaum got me on the radio station during one of my summer camps and started trying to prod me into figuring out why I'm not involved anymore and I said I'm not telling you you know I, I'm just not going to go into that um, you've criticized me so many times I, I just don't want to the call didn't last very long, obviously. Um, but yeah, and so it, that was a fun time too, getting the Olympics here, going to Atlanta starting in 1994, trying to um, get the Olympics to in 96 to Birmingham. And, um, and whenever that was a you're fun trying time. to do big things, there's always going to be some criticism. Right, exactly. Um, you know, and, yeah. uh, it is what it is. And, um, but I'm happy with the way it turned out. And, uh, Birmingham was a great venue um, at the field we had and, um, a good friend of mine, uh, I appointed to be the head of the field situation there. He's an architect and, um, we changed the field and, you know, you could be pouring down rain and we turned the pumps on underneath the field and the field's dry. I mean, it's wow. just a really unique thing. It's unbelievable. Um, and so we did some good things here, uh, with it, I think. Um, Absolutely. But, You've done a lot of good. Well, Coach, uh, thank you so much for your time. Can you tell everyone how they can reach you or learn more about uh, your work, uh, your webpage, anything uh, social media-wise that you like to share? Well, um, I'm just on Facebook, um, and I'm on Instagram. I'm on Instagram as Coach Satch, which was my one of my dogs I used to have. And uh, Instagram is just Preston – I mean, Facebook's Preston Goldfarb. And um, my email is pgoldfarb. P G O L D F A R without the B at B as in boy, S as in Sam, C as in Charlie dot edu. Uh, that's my email. And I'm, I'm, I love to interact with folks. They want to 
talk about it. I'll talk all day. And that was a gift having Coach Goldfarb on the show. Uh, we'll be sharing all his social media and links underneath the show tags. Again, I'm Richard Listens. You can check me out at Instagram at richardlistens.com and my patreon.com slash richardlistens page. And I'm Richard Olberger. This is the Richard Listens Show. Thank you for joining me. And stay tuned next time. Available on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. I'm Richard Listens, and I'm out. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Lastly, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the session. I've personally taken a few of these classes and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion and with a drenched shirt. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Take care, everyone.